This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for March 2nd, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, we know that vaccine immunity wanes over time, although that seems to be a particular issue for protection against less severe disease. And today we have a study that addresses how well vaccination does work against more mild COVID-19 and how that decreases over time. We also have an interesting thought piece about the lessons we learned about making vaccines and how we might possibly make vaccines even more rapidly for the next pandemic. But let's start with the study from the United Kingdom that looks at vaccine effectiveness against mild to moderate disease. How did this study work? Steve, this was a test negative design, a type of study we've discussed many times in the past. This study used community testing data collected between December of 2020 and October 1st of 2021. There are a few important aspects to keep in mind. During this period, alpha was the dominant viral strain circulating until May when the Delta variant became the dominant strain. All of these data were collected before the appearance of the Omicron variant. In the UK, two different vaccines have been used, BNT162b2, the Pfizer vaccine, which is of course an mRNA vaccine, and Chadox-1 from AstraZeneca, which uses an adenovirus vector. During this time, there were no boosters given, so everyone was scheduled to get a two-dose series. However, the timing of these doses varied considerably, as the United Kingdom did not follow the same protocol as was used in the U.S. The data included test results and emergency department visits. The investigators also had access to information on deaths through linkage to another registry. And what did the investigators conclude? The group studied included a large number of those who had been tested, with more than six million that could be linked to vaccination status. In addition, for many individuals, it was possible to use PCR data to distinguish those who were infected with alpha from those who had delta. For both alpha and delta, the mRNA vaccine was more effective than the adenovirus-based vaccine. Effectiveness against symptomatic disease declined for both vaccines, falling to about 65% for the Pfizer vaccine and below 50% for the AstraZeneca vaccine against delta by greater than 20 weeks after vaccination. However, both were far more active in preventing hospitalization and death, and the declines for these endpoints were far less steep. This held true even for those who were older than 65, though among these older vaccinated individuals, there was a slightly higher rate of failure of the vaccine to keep people out of the hospital. Altogether, the findings of the study seem consistent with others we've already discussed. mRNA vaccines are more effective and immunity induced by them lasts longer than with other vaccines. However, it's important to remember that while we see waning of immunity against mild disease, all vaccines work much better to prevent hospitalization and death, and that effect is more persistent. So Eric, I think that these data highlight two important points. First, as you alluded to, there is a difference between infection and disease or mild illness and severe illness. And I think we as a community have to come to terms with the reality that SARS-CoV-2 is unlikely to go away. So as it persists, we need to understand that it may become or hopefully will become more like the seasonal coronaviruses we've all become used to. There are four seasonal coronaviruses, many If not all of us have had at least one, if not multiple infections, and we do not care. We need to start to think about how do we change SARS-CoV-2 from 
the feared epidemic it is to an infectious disease that we're more used to. And I think prior vaccination, prior infection are all features that diminish the severity of illness and should allow us to think about what our expectations are from our preventive modalities, particularly vaccine. And as the virus evolves and we have different variants, we may see breakthrough infections in those who have partial immunity, such as from vaccination. And we have to carefully look at the significance of these infections. And that will allow us to change our prevention strategies to protect those who are most vulnerable rather than protect all of us from any infection, which is highly unlikely. Lindsay, there may be some interesting biology here. We know that the vaccines become less able to protect against infection and less able to protect against infection with more divergent variants like Omicron. And yet they're still able to decrease the average severity of disease, even while they're failing to protect against infection. That suggests that some sort of partial immunity or partial cross immunity in the case of different variants is enough to prevent severe infection, or that the quality of the immune response is a type that prevents severity. We've talked before about how the major immune response induced by the current vaccines is a systemic immune response rather than a mucosal immune response. And one can imagine that systemic immunity, antibody circulating, T cells circulating in the body are better at fighting off a pathogen which is invaded, but not so good at preventing infection on a mucosal surface. So I wonder if to some extent this tells us something about the types of immune responses we're getting. I mean, Eric, I think there's precedent in this space. You know, as we know, the polio virus caused devastating epidemics, severe paralysis. We have the iconic images of the large ventilator arenas to support young people who contracted polio and had paralysis, particularly of the diaphragm. What we've learned from the polio vaccine you know, the oral attenuated strain versus the inactivated intramuscular dosing is that both prevented severe illness, paralysis. However, the oral vaccine decreased transient gastrointestinal infection to a greater extent than the intramuscular vaccination by a couple of weeks in terms of detectability in the stool. So that different routes of vaccination may lead to different types of immunity in different compartments. However, both vaccines highly effective against severe illness as measured by paralysis. So I think we do have to understand what colonization or transient infection without systemic illness means, and how do we come to terms with the clinical significance of that as we try to protect those who are most vulnerable. Lindsay, that also brings up another point, which is that one of the problems with developing new generations of vaccines has been that most people are vaccinated or have been infected in the past. And therefore, we're looking at a very different population to protect than we had before. And also, it's more difficult to see a signal of protection. 
right now in most of the world, the number of cases is declining. And of course, that would make it difficult to test new vaccines. However, should there be a new outbreak, likely due to a new variant, I think there's plenty of room to improve on what we have based on infection as an endpoint rather than disease severity as an endpoint. And that will enable us to try new things uh, should they be needed. Today, we also published an interesting perspective from the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, or CEPI. CEPI is an international organization devoted to developing and disseminating vaccines for emerging infections, and it's been deeply involved in the SARS-CoV-2 outbreak. Part of CEPI's mission is to innovate around how to get vaccines out rapidly and equitably. And in this article, the authors argue that what we've learned from the rapid development and deployment of the SARS-CoV-2 vaccines can help us to even further accelerate vaccine development and availability. They conclude that using optimal practices, we can have vaccines available for a new disease in as little as 250 days. And they propose further steps to try to achieve a goal of 100 days. So each of you has been involved in aspects of vaccine development, though at different stages of the spectrum. So I'd like to get your thoughts on how realistic it is to make vaccines and to get them into people more rapidly. Eric, let's start with the beginning of the process, the science behind the development of a vaccine. How can we make that faster? The next pandemic is likely to be caused by a virus. We know that because that's largely what's caused pandemics in the past. There have been occasional bacterial epidemics like the Black Death, but mostly these have been viruses. And so in order to develop vaccines quickly for viruses, it helps to know a lot about viruses and viral immunity. So I think the first step along the way is to understand how protective immunity develops against different kinds of viruses, because immunity is quite different depending on what kind of virus you have. Now, the best way to investigate protection against viral infection is to develop prototype vaccines, even for viruses which are not important human pathogens. But understanding how vaccination might work against different classes of viruses, some of which may be animal pathogens, would get us a long way to understanding how a new human pathogen that emerged might be counteracted by vaccination. One other big lesson from the current epidemic is that the fastest thing we can make are mRNA vaccines because they're made in a very routine fashion and the manufacturing has already been figured out. So everything all along the way could be accelerated greatly if we were able to use mRNA vaccines. Viral vectors are also relatively rapid. The adenovirus vectors that have been used We've seen somewhat less efficacy out of the viral vector vaccines, but that may be peculiar to this infection. We don't know. And the last thing that I think we took away from this is that pursuing many different avenues simultaneously is expensive and inefficient, but it's the way to get things working very quickly. We've learned that from NASA's experience, and it translates well into biology as it did in space. Eric, I think that what's implicit in what you were describing is that when there is a novel pathogen, we have to simultaneously develop vaccines, as you suggest, but we also have to rapidly understand pathogenesis, the nature of the disease it causes, and therefore what endpoints may be relevant. And that's easier to do for another variant of a known bug, another flu variant, another coronavirus variant. 
it becomes trickier when it's a brand new pathogen that we don't understand its disease pathogenesis and the kinds of illness it causes over what temporal spectrum. So I think that at the same time that we can rapidly develop the countermeasures such as vaccines, we really have to understand the disease caused so we know what benefit we're trying to achieve and that can then be part of the scientific process. Before these vaccines can get into arms or up noses, we need approval, both for the clinical trials and for broader deployment. Can that be done more quickly? I think the answer is maybe. Of course, the more we know about a class of vaccines, the better off we are. Now we have some understanding of the safety of mRNA-based vaccines, for example, and adenovirus-based vaccines because so many people have received them. So we've made a lot of progress, at least in terms of the modality of delivering vaccines that can help us weigh the risk and benefit. Of course, this is very disease specific. So for a disease like Ebola, we might be able to roll out vaccines much earlier because the safety of the vaccine is less of an issue if the disease is incredibly deadly, like Ebola, whereas a disease which produces low morbidity or little mortality would be very different and our safety considerations would be paramount in that case. And it might take more testing for that kind of disease in order to enable us to be confident that we could go into people. For some diseases, the authors of this piece suggest that we could be deploying vaccines in crucial areas before they're approved. That happened with Ebola. They were authorized early for use in an endemic area in the setting of an outbreak long before they could ever be approved. And that's happened during the SARS-CoV-2 epidemic as well, with early authorization followed by much later approval of vaccines. So there are avenues, I think, to accelerate the regulatory process, but we need to do that paying very close attention to vaccine safety. Eric, I think as you point out, it depends a bit on the pathogen. And if we think a little bit about the pandemic H1N1 from 2009 versus Ebola versus SARS-CoV-2, we have a pathway for new vaccines against flu. And in fact, quite frequently, we update the vaccine annually or every couple of years for our routine flu vaccine. And in that setting, we have an understanding of titers that correlate with protection. So it allows very rapid acceleration because we have a pathogen we understand and we can modify the vaccine or the countermeasure at a speed appropriate. It gets trickier when we know less about the pathogen. And that is what we witnessed in our response to COVID and to Ebola. It sort of reminds me a bit when you talk about the regulatory framework in that we have to think about a global regulatory framework and the uh, book, Arrowsmith, where this was exactly what went on when there was an outbreak. And how does one respond to that outbreak, being compassionate to those who are sick while trying to understand if our new potion really works? And we need to have that kind of framework where we're able to provide care rapidly when there is no known treatment, but we can rigorously study it so we understand if it does work and then can further accelerate its development and deployment. And the regulatory authorities nationally and globally have to help set up the proper frameworks to allow this. 
because the response will need to be in country where the pathogen emerges initially and causes its initial severe infections. I'm glad you brought up Aerosmith because, of course, Aerosmith is a work of fiction. But in fact, in fiction, as in exercises, we can actually explore things that we need to think about now, even though we don't know what's coming. So I think it's crucially important to be considering these issues and taking into account what we've done before, what happened during this outbreak, what happened with the Ebola vaccine, and figuring out where we went right and where we went wrong. And I think that there are ways we can do a better job in every step along the way, including the regulatory aspects. What about testing? Can clinical trials be shorter? Can they provide better interim results? So Steve, conducting rigorous clinical trials that provide the kind of scientific proof that we need remains a real challenge. And as the authors of this piece point out, things were done faster than they were done before in response to COVID. However, we must do it better. And how do we accelerate our clinical trials? There are several ways in which we can enhance speed. How do we power our trials? In the COVID trials, for example, initial designs were for a year to have an outcome. By doubling the sample size, one can have the time to six months. So an example, as Eric alluded to, which is it's an economic issue, is how much is time worth to be able to design studies that can provide the same amount of information in less time. And it is an economic consideration. How we set up safety rules, because safety is so important, to be able to have the ability to provide interim analyses, not only for futility, but to ensure there's no harm. And if there's evidence, compelling evidence of efficacy, then the trials can be stopped and those treatments can move forward. And we've witnessed a myriad of treatments for COVID that were stopped early because of efficacy. Unfortunately, some of those early stopping events did not subsequently hold up to the same efficacy level as initially seen by the DSMB. But that comes with how we monitor trials and the play of chance. We also need to think about local capacity. The clinical trials need to be done where the disease is raging. That may be locally or it may be in different parts of the world. And we have to set up the capacity to do the critical studies where the disease is occurring so that we can rapidly determine if the therapy works before it is as globally widespread as it may become. So I think there are several things we can do, Steve. There's a lot more work in this space, but I think the authors of this piece provide provocative discussion about issues we should be considering as we try to accelerate these types of studies. To expand on that a little bit, the idea of spending money is easy during a huge outbreak. And certainly many governments, particularly the U.S. government, spent a huge amount of money to go after a moonshot, to simultaneously pursue many leads to develop a vaccine and to fund lots of simultaneous expensive clinical trials. But if we're going to be ready for the next outbreak, we're going to be having to spend money on infrastructure. One of the things that has been clear from this outbreak is that infrastructure counts and platforms for performing clinical trials are really important. 
Maintaining those costs money though. And I think that we really need to consider an investment in clinical trials platforms that can be moved very quickly from whatever they're studying to important health issues of the day so that we can get things rolling early. There's no question that clinical research on COVID-19 took a while to take off and many, many people were being treated. I'm thinking primarily about therapies here, but many people were being treated before there was any evidence that those therapies could work. I think that for the next outbreak, one of the lessons is we need to be enrolling patients in trials very early. And that means we need to have the infrastructure to do it. So Eric, I want to highlight your point about spending billions to develop vaccines, for example. I think we have to be careful about how we look at the investment. When it's a trillion dollar catastrophe, we look at the economies being shut down, the impact on global trade, global health, as well as the other social disruption. How we think about billions of dollars of investment to get out of this nightmare, we need to think carefully about. And I think some good choices were made over the last two years in response to this. There are many other issues that need to be improved upon, but some investments were made that have made a big difference. The other point that you raise, which is very important, is during the inter-pandemic period. When we're not in the middle of a pandemic, do we continue to invest the resources to be quick on our feet and nimble to respond when another issue emerges? And I do think that every year we accept influenza with you know, 50 to 100,000 deaths in the U.S. alone, and yet we don't make the investment to deal with that as we have dealt with COVID. So I think there are a variety of illnesses we've become complacent with that some of this effort could be pointed towards. But the interpandemic period is a critical time for us to lay the foundation to be much more responsive against these health threats. I just want to point out that there is an infrastructure for influenza, and there are both monitoring capacities and regulatory systems for developing each year's vaccine. I think what you're getting at here, Lindsay, is something transformative. How can we deal with influenza rather than annually on a perpetual basis? And I think that's an excellent point. One of the problems we saw with SARS-CoV-2 was that people couldn't get the vaccines even after they were authorized or approved. And of course, this continues to be particularly acute in poorer countries where vaccines are still not widely available. Are there potential solutions to get vaccines out there more quickly? One of the issues with the COVID-19 outbreak was that the vaccines that came into use most quickly were unusual in that they were based on mRNA or based on adenoviruses, and there had never been very large-scale manufacturing of any of these before. So there was quite a bit to learn about how to make them. But we've done that now, and I think that there's an opportunity to spread out the ability to make those vaccines. Once again, this is an infrastructure investment, but the idea of distributed manufacturing, particularly of manufacturing capacity in countries which have not received vaccine up till now and won't receive vaccine if there's another pandemic is a good idea. Now, of course, this is also expensive, just as we talked about for research platforms, but it seems like a very reasonable investment 
Vaccines are going to be around. We're going to continue to have to make vaccines against normal childhood diseases for the foreseeable future, perhaps forever. And having this capacity in the places that need to distribute vaccines makes a tremendous amount of sense. So, Eric, I think that the manufacturing capacity has emerged as one of the real weak links in our response. And I think that something that we as a global community have to think carefully about is how do we go to scale with enough product for everyone who needs it? And that requires international investment and the manufacturing should be decentralized, not in a limited number of countries who then can decide to repartition how the vaccine is used or shared. In addition, and this is something our dear friend Paul Farmer has taught me over the years, is the importance of local infrastructure to deliver healthcare. And we do that, as you suggest, WHO, the World Health Organization, has a child vaccination program that enable children throughout the world, particularly in less resourced areas, to have full access to vaccines that they need. We need to enhance this public health infrastructure to be able to deliver vaccines of need, including in urgent situations like a pandemic. And by creating this kind of public health infrastructure, there can be routine benefit as well as surge capacity in response to pandemics such as the one we're dealing with now. So I think this gets to your point, Eric, from earlier. We have to invest in public health infrastructure to be able to respond to deliver the medicine of need when it is needed. And during a pandemic, that is done under dire circumstance and needs to be done urgently. But it needs to be built upon a functioning infrastructure. I think there's plenty of room for improvement in our delivery of vaccines worldwide anyway, even in the U.S. And so this is really an opportunity as much as anything. It's an opportunity to prepare for disaster, but it's also an opportunity to have smoother functioning of what we do now. So when we see opportunities like this, we should be taking advantage of them. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.